Hello and welcome. My name's Dr Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to episode 36 of Talking About Immersive Theatre, or T-A-I-T for short, which is not to be confused with a very famous cultural organisation that's based in London. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode. In this episode, I talk to Glenn and Victoria from Darkfield Radio about the different kinds of work that they make and the different ways in which they engage with their audiences. So without further ado, I am going to let you listen to our very, very insightful conversation. So I'm here at the Selly Oak campus at the University of Birmingham in the Drama and Theatre Arts Department, where, as lots of you who listen know, I work. <laughs> so today I have with me Victoria Ayton, who is creative producer, and Glenn Neath, who is the artistic director of Darkfield. Um, so thank you very much for joining me. We've just had an amazing workshop as well with some folk who've come along to the department to do that, which has been amazing. So thank you very much. Um, so there's lots and lots for us to talk about, but I wanted to just find out sort of, you know, what your background is. How, where did, you know, did you train in theatre? Did you train in gaming? Did you train at all? And how you sort of got to be involved with Darkfield. So can I start with you, Glenn? How far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was fine artist. I did, I did fine art at college uh-huh. in Nottingham. And I, uh, when I then moved to London, was trying to continue to paint pictures and they were often very big pictures and I was you know fa- trying to find spaces to do that in I was in a squat and I was in a, a shoe factory but I you know I, I also kind of love writing and I and I started doing some night classes I had no idea really how to get into I just I just liked writing and then when I found this American guy who was teaching me in this night school and, and then I started to try and write plays I sent them to the Royal Court, I had a couple of readings, but I never really, w- w- I was never writing plays, you know, I remember mm-hmm. the, the literary manager who had a uh, chat with me afterwards and he said that I was willfully perverse, was <laughs> <laughs> how he described my writing. That's, I'd have that on a badge. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. For me it was, you know, how can you say that when you see some of the things that they, you know, bottles of people's, you know, this type of stuff. Uh-huh. Anyway, so so I tried to do that and, and then I, and then I, I had this sort of, I'd not done any training in, in theatre or, or writing. I just basically, you know, tried to get into it in that in, in that way. And then I and then I had this. I went to see Shunt, and that kind of changed uh-huh. everything for me because I suddenly uh-huh. thought, you know, y- y- you can do some stuff that's not just about writing plays that have beginning, middle, and then you can think about theatre in many in a, in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. So I sort of started then. Um, that I sort of they were very sort of they would invite people in on their cabaret they're these cabaret nights so mm-hmm. I just made these little sketches and I'd was that where they went when they were <coughs> down in the vaults in, no before that they were oh, in the, they were in an archway in Bastnell Green so oh. they had this small archway and they were these do seven months used to do these kind of crazy cabaret nights where they would do a sketch a little sketch that they'd done and you people were invited in to do it and I was kind of like I, I was using shunt actors and I'd say let's do some rehearsals and I'd try and get them together for three hours and then my wife who's not, the designer who's now my wife she she did this thing where I said, what are you going to do for this thing? And she said, oh, and she got a lawnmower and put a white coat on and pushed it down the middle of the audience and that was it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's fantastic. So I started, I started meeting people there and I met Anthony Hampton and I did some shows with headphones, um, sort of this kind of shows where the, where the actors were unrehearsed and they just repeated lines that were written for them and created conversations oh. and we did a couple of shows with him. And then I'd worked a little bit with Hannah Ringham, who had, with, with Shunt, and, and then David, of course, was with Shunt. And, uh, and we just started talking about, uh, we kind of be interested in the audience, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, uh, 
And I'd written a couple of published novels as well, and I realised subsequent to that, they're kind of Darkfield shows. They're sort of novels of, there's a protagonist, uh-huh. uh, unnamed, who just, uh, stuff happens to them. There's no story about where they come from, there's no backstory, it's just them going through things happening to them. And then I, I, was, I was trying to put together this uh, this talk out to do someone and I, I look back at those and I suddenly realised they actually they were Darkfield shows, Darkfield shows. In, Embry- in, in Embryo yeah <laughs> so kind of a very around the houses so was yeah. meeting David then kind of like the catalyst for the start uh, of Darkfield in yeah I mean then me and David then David had started I'd done these headphone pieces with Anthony and David had made some shows using binaural sound with mm-hmm. choreography uh, with Frau Raycott so we've done oh, a couple of shows yeah. and also did one called Contains Violence at the Lyric where you sat on the roof of the Lyric and you watch some people in a building across the way mm-hmm. so he'd, he'd and we just started I can't remember why why we so we went, we'd known each other for a few years by then 10 years I think before oh, wow. we started working together and I'd worked with lots of the Hannah and did little sketches with Gemma and a few, quite a few of them but not never with David and then and then we just got together and started chatting about making these shows using darkness and binaural sound. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning we knew that we wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we made a couple of theatre shows, shows for theatres, before we founded Darkfield in 2016. And how about you, Victoria? What's your background? So, um, I've loved being back in Birmingham because I grew up near here, going to the Birmingham Rep Youth Theatre, um, all through my teens. Um, and part of their young company also passed my, you know, into my early twenties. I took a I took some year years out after um, school, so stayed around here, and then went to London, moved there to join um, the Drama Applied Theatre and Education course at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, yeah. um, which I loved. I really loved that course. It's really um, brilliant for letting you explore multiple roles, and I always knew that I wanted to do something more on the producing side and so I sort of had that strand through throughout my drama school uh, career where on projects you had to make but you also had another role so I'd always be in that kind of working in that capacity yeah Um, and whilst I was there I really started um, going to more experiential non-traditional work and loving it Um, I went to one of Glenn and David's early pieces um, that was at the Battersea Art Centre, so I mm-hmm. experienced some of their work. Little, you know, little would I know that I would work with them uh, years <coughs> later. Um, but whilst there, I started um, volunteering and working with Punch Drunk. Um, I did an internship there whilst still a student, and then pretty much immediately after my internship ended, I just joined the team as a freelancer, particularly working in the enrichment punch drunk enrichment side um, where there was some overlap with um, the Drown Man the show, the London show big London show they had on at the time but also with working in um, the work that was going on in schools or other settings that Mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily punch drunk's big public work um, they've separated out now, haven't they? Actually, yes. Yeah, so there's punch drunk, punch drunk international, and then it's punch drunk enrichment. Enrichment. Yeah. Yeah. So they continue to make the work, and mm-hmm. I worked there for many years um, on both kind of strands of the company, working both on their more public work and on their enrichment work. Great. So for you know eight years, I worked on in many different capacities, but um, for example, on the Lost Lending Library, the flagship project to punch drunk enrichment. Um, and just many other projects and R&Ds that came up during my time at Punch Drunk. Um, so there at Punch Drunk, I met Andrea Salazar, 
who is my connection to David and Glenn. Andrea worked at Shunt as well, and then founded Darkfield with David and Glenn. So um, I think when I decided to go back to being a freelancer after some years at Punch Drunk, I um, continued working there, but then also started to work with Darkfield. And it was all very early days at the time that Darkfield was just beginning. So I've been been around since maybe well, since the start, but a couple, week two. you know, week two <laughs> instead of week yeah, one. Yeah. Um, so very early days and um, worked with um, the team ever since um, on all the kind of container projects and the digital work every across the company. So mm-hmm. it's so interesting to hear these connections because there are like little pockets where everyone is connected. So Shunt connects a lot of people. Bassey Arts Centre very early on connects a lot of people as well and Punch Drunk and it's yeah. and actually Central, that course at Central. There seems to be lots of people come out of Rose Brew or they come yeah. out of that course at Central. Well, that's so. where Shunt came from, they formed in that. Yeah, exactly. So there's this really and no one's really mapped it or kind of like looked at these routes in, but there's kind of little pockets where these things sprung out from and it makes us kind of quite incestuous I think as a sector because everyone's kind of been involved with everyone else along the way. Definitely, <laughs> even work that se- might seem a bit unrelated, like I did a bit of work on Abba Voyage mm. um, but that was because they used dancers and at Punch Drunk we used dancers, yeah, lots of, of amazing contemporary dancers mm-hmm. and huge numbers of them. So if there's a dancer working on a project and they need a producer, it's like, hey! So you just end up doing all sorts of things because you've got this network of people and everything's overlapping now. All these disciplines are feeding into one another and it becomes this very, as you say, small community. Lots of people are working Mm -hmm. together all the time across these companies doing different roles. So, yeah. yeah. Which I think is very exciting, isn't it? We're right on the cusp, I think, of it becoming something much more mainstream and becoming something much more visible, which I think Mm. is quite exciting. But ultimately, it's a very small group of people that are kind of at the heart of all of it, which I think is really, really exciting. It's exciting. (laughs) And then also, I think we are also trying to find ways to be accessible as well, so that we're not just feeling like this faraway community that's inaccessible to some who aren't people that went to Central or yes. Rosebrewford or whoever it is. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely something exciting about doing work. You know, we've had our shows on Australia quite a lot and it's got always quite interesting to see. Mm. And there's and there's lots of sort of videos and stuff on TikTok and Instagram which now little it's like almost unrecognisable. You know, you, you can't imagine that you're part of the company that they're talking about somehow. Yeah, yeah. Whereas previously I'd always worked in shows that, you know, friends or <laughs> you know, it's like it's kind of yeah. it's kind of interesting to sort of see the work spread out and there's lots of people that is you the, don't know, um, they don't know you. Is there lots of work uh, in Australia? Is there, would you say there's kind of an immersive? Because I noticed that there's kind of like pockets here, there's pockets in the States, we're seeing in France as well, there's a lot of pockets. I don't speak French though, so I keep seeing lots of stuff coming up on LinkedIn, mm. but I'm not. I, I recognise the word immersive in there. Like, what is this? <laughs> I don't know, what is this? <laughs> but is, is, there, is there a kind of scene in Australia as well then? Uh, I don't, I don't think so, no, which is why we've probably mm. found a home, you know, I think it's quite, yeah. um, I think there's not a lot of work like ours there, and yeah. uh, the way it's here, it's kind of saturated, I think, but over there, I think we're quite a novelty, so we've built up a bit Ooh. of a following, you know, we've been going around the festivals, yeah. adding a show in the same way as we've done in the UK, oh, we've great. added a show every year in yeah. Australia, so we've now got four. So you might be responsible for a new pocket springing up. Yes. In Australia, then. <laughs> Who knows, maybe, yeah. That would be exciting to Influencing new makers to yes. uh, sort of start doing this kind of work, which would be extraordinary if that happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> so, Darkfield, how did it kind of 
come about? What is it that you think is unique about what it is that you do? What's at the heart of your your show? Well, I think when we started it, I suppose it was probably. I mean, I think now, you know, immersive, as, as, as you said, and it wasn't it wasn't really a thing back it back in, even. This was like seven years ago. It wasn't really a thing. Yeah, even in 2016, it was kind of... No, it used to be sort of site-specific. We used to be yes. the thing. Shunt was site-specific site or experiential, yeah. I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I used to sort of think of them as experiential because it always felt to me that they were doing work where... I, I was never keen on theatre shows where they would pretend something was something else, you know, like oh. they would pretend a book was a bird or whatever. Yeah, I was, like, I yeah, was yeah. I kind of, I never, I found that a bit twee. But with, <laughs> with shunt, you know, when you're in this space and there was somebody was pushing a hearse down the corridor, yeah. playing a, a rock guitar in front of it, and that's exactly what it was. It yeah. wasn't pretending to be anything else. It felt to me that that I suppose is is a precursor for the idea of immersive in that you know it's uh, it's what it is, yes. and it's not. You know, it's never pretending to be anything else. It's kind of weirdly Brechtian, actually, in that yeah. way that it's it's it really is the thing. Yeah. Like it's really the boxing ring, which was what yeah. he used, it's, and that's what Shunt started to do. And then we started to see lots of other companies doing that as well. But you're right; it's kind of not a pretense in the same way. Yeah. So it came, I think Shunt came out of that that sort of idea of they they never they never saw themselves as a theatre company. Mm. And that's a, a slight, and I think the same for the same for us. We were often reviewed as a theatre company, yes. Especially when we first started making work, and it was a bit like, well, this is where's where's the story? Where's the story? And, uh, or wouldn't yes. it be great if they did uh, Shakespeare in the dark? And it's better. Well, you're totally missing the point, you know. Yes. It's not You can't do Shakespeare in the dark because that's one. Just listen to it on the radio, you know. It needs. To, it has to be about the thing. Has to be, you know. You're in the dark, and and it yes. feels like uh, for, for us, it's always about making the audience member feel as if it, it, it's happening around them and it's very specific and particular to them. Mm-hmm. So it's not about, you know, you're part of an audience looking at something. You're, I mean, you know, at the same time we do play with the idea of the audience. We, we, we want everything to feel as, you know, we don't just feel like an isolating experience. It's mm-hmm. about being amongst a, a crowd and, and, mm-hmm. and having other people do it with you. But we just play with the idea of um, those other, other people in the space with you, the audience, and, and, and sort of, we sort of use them. We we put them in our stories, but you know, obviously yes. recorded iterations of the audience. Yes. Would well, you think it's that? Do you think it's the liveness that's at the heart of that approach? It, that's why mm. you get classified as kind of theatre most often. Uh, I, I don't really know. Actually, I suppose it's, maybe it's because you know we invite theatre critics there. I suppose <laughs> it's, you know there is also you know, but uh, yeah, but it feels like it's uh, it feels like with the theatre criticism that they you know they know how to look at theatre but they never really know how to look at anything else so shunt were, were a, a, a prime example you get you get a theatre critic go down there and he'd say well they, they haven't done this this bit of you know and it, it referred to, it, it, it was one particular critic and he, it, and he spoke about Milton's underworld or, or, or something or other but he was reviewing a, a, a thing that they weren't even trying to do no but he was trying to put he was trying to find oh. his own story in it and he, oh, and, and he was reviewing a play which is <laughs> which they weren't doing you know, because he he, he wasn't he, he didn't find enough in the show to sort of uh, to understand in a very traditional way. That's always been my issue, actually, and why I haven't been to the theatre theatre in quite some time because there's this sort of dogged and persistent relationship with text mm. and with narrative and story in a very particular way that I think a lot of immersive or experiential work functions in a very different way mm. to that and um, it's another big issue and this is other makers are talking about this too which I think is very interesting is that it is theatre critics who seem to come to review or to consider the work but actually there aren't enough theatre critics who actually have a sense of what like a good sense of what this kind of work is mm. so that they come at it with 
the right kind of mindset. And I think that's something that's going to need to change for us moving forwards. Is, yeah. is people the people coming need to be a bit more interdisciplinary or a bit more open in the way that they approach the work rather than this kind of theatre. I, mean, I don't know whether theatre criticism feels a bit like it's sort of disappearing. I mean, I don't know mm. whether that's true, but it doesn't feel like a. Even seven years ago, it felt like a massive thing to get reviewers in. Yeah, it seems less less a thing now. Well, there's a real challenge with it, isn't there? Because it has to run for a certain yeah. amount of time before they'll even come. Yeah. Down. And of course, with a lot of these things, they happen, they disappear. Yeah. They happen, they disappear, and they don't have the kind of runs that critics see was worthwhile coming to. Yeah. Which I think is is weird. But um, Lynn Gardner was really good. She was quite open and she was quite supportive of this kind of work. Yeah. But of Definitely. course, she is no longer. Well, she's still reviewing. She's still reviewing. Not for the same stage, publication. But not for but the same publication. She's been yeah. very supportive, you know, yes. on the whole of Darkfield, and I really kind yes. of understood. She said one really nice thing about our first show, which we used all it. All that we still use it. We still it's use lovely. it. No, she's, yeah, she's been very. She's come, um, she's come to most everything. Yeah, she's great, and I think yeah. she really gets it. Whereas I think a lot of other traditional theatre critics don't seem mm. to really. They come at it looking for something that it isn't. Yeah. And so I think that they're ultimately coming knowing they'll be disappointed in many ways because it doesn't meet their expectations. And I guess we have a lot more people now contributing to the conversation. It's democratised yeah. in a way that social yes. media has allowed it to, you mm-hmm. know, everyone to have a voice and say what they think about something. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, it's not necessarily, it's, a, yeah, we still invite the critics down, but we're also hearing from a lot more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's nice, like you were saying, TikTok, there's lots of things on TikTok, and especially like Punch Drunk have massive super fans, so there's loads of vlogs and blogs, and you can start to access the work, or the, work gets, the word gets spread about work, but from a much more democratised space than just kind of rarefied people who've set themselves up as a sort of... Authority. Authority <laughs> on the work, when actually this work, the audience is so, is so central to it, then aren't, they are the authority, surely. Mm. On, on that experience <laughs> and what's really interesting I think we might have found later in the more recent years when we've done um, some more work in the maybe the XR community who are extended reality people exploring different tech um, is that people in that community and critics and reviewers or bloggers in that community have a lot more openness to seeing something as a work in progress everyone's very kind mm. because everyone's like oh, they're using something new, they are experimenting with a new technique, and everyone's very understanding of what they see, what you're trying to do. It's interesting. I think um, that was probably coming from a point of view where there is less story. Mm-hmm. So I, we've got stories. Yeah, so it's exciting. <laughs> <In comparison. laughs> yeah. Because, you know, a lot of us, they've got all this amazing tech, but n- maybe people aren't necessarily knowing how to use it, so it's all yes. very tech-heavy, so I think... Uh, We've hit a nice sweet spot between the two worlds in a way Mm -hmm. where we can bring some narrative and story but also people are very open and people are very open. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say then was your first piece that you would say that is a dark field show and that kind of was was the start of us and, and really expresses kind of like where we started to go? It's funny, I mean, the first two shows were made, I mean, everything feels like it's part, part. you know, Ring and Fiction, the mm-hmm. first two shows, they were like 50 minutes in the dark, they were a long time, so they, yeah. were, they felt very different in that respect, but they were all, that we're using the same, I mean, what, I suppose the first Darkfield show was when we put it in a shipping container, because that brought on all other, you know, that meant that we had a set, mm-hmm. which we hadn't previously had in the other shows, they were just chairs in a space, so we had a set, and then we were able to introduce other elements like, you know, 
moving floors and aromas and and all these are the special effects that we're that we're using uh, that to augment the narrative. But so I suppose in that sense, yeah, Darkfield began with the seance really, and it feels mm -hmm. like there's been a you know they've all felt like they've been you know I think the first three maybe were like, I think people seem to sort of judge them as a trilogy. You know, it's a bit like, oh, there's, there's a trilogy that's been finished, but it was never never meant to be that. But I think there is a sort of feeling that we yeah. fit together in the eulogy, the subsequent one feels like the next chapter. Mm -hmm. chapter. And then mm -hmm. the, the new one the new one we're making is, in, is another step on again. But I think, um, yeah, it's a seance, I suppose. And seance was like a, a bit like a, it's a great advert for the things that we, you know, we do. I think flight is more difficult for audiences in that. Well, seance is basically you're in a you're in a shipping container. You're with a bunch of people, and you think that a bunch of people have been messed around with, and that really that really sets and shows off the sort of the, mm -hmm. the sort of techniques that we use very well. Yes, I think. How did the shipping containers come about? What was it? What was the decision to use shipping containers? Well, we've made these two shows in theatres, and we'd you'd record them in a particular space. So we we recorded Ring in Warwick, um, uh, not Art Centre. Art Centre. It was in the part of the college. Anyway, so we did it in, the, in, a, in, a, in a hall that was about the same size, incidentally, as the Battersea Arts Centre's council chamber where we put mm -hmm. it on. But then when we started to tour it into different spaces, smaller ones, bigger ones, the, the acoustic of the space that you were listening to, and we're playing around all the time with the space that you're sitting in, so mm -hmm. when it didn't feel like the acoustics of the space that you actually knew you were sitting in, it started to feel a bit off, and, and it was very difficult to black out spaces. It took days, especially if they were big spaces. So we... Yeah. Um, thought about how can we how can we sort of have more control over the space yeah so that that's where it came about and then the, the shipping container model it was a bit like well you can we get 30 people in there so how are you going to possibly make that financially viable but then we thought well if, you know if it's a short piece you can do it 10 times a day yeah and suddenly you've got an audience of 300 yeah so that's kind of how we because um, the previous shows were only done once a night mm -hmm. in a traditional theatre way yeah of course so uh so the shipping container came about just mainly for to, to, we wanted to get have control of the space really. Yeah. And so, what's so important about having the audience in the dark? What is it that sort of drives that um, methodology? Well, it was about uh, well, binaural sound is is very effective at uh, making it uh, making it feel as if it, you know the show is very particular to you so you because if you're if you imagine that you're in the position of the binaural head which is the microphone that we use to record all our shows that's basically in the position of the audience member if you and so if you're listening back to what you have recorded around the binaural head then it feels as if you are that's you and mm. everybody's having the same experience but if you, what we started to do is mess around with the idea that other audience members were having different experiences mm -hmm. because you could hear them you could hear them in the space with you um, and the darkness, I suppose, was key because. Um, so, what's effective about an audience? You can basically whisper in every audience member's ear at the same time, and but in order to do that, they can't see you. you can't show them. So, the <laughs> darkness is key to be able to have everybody having the same that kind of intimacy, the same intimacy, the same person whispering in their ear and making it feel as if it's only you that's been spoken to. Mm -hmm. I think you that, does that make sense? Yeah, that does. I think you sometimes describe it as an audience-shaped hole. Yes. That the audience can put themselves in within mm. this story, within this narrative, and, you know, it allows them and their senses to really... Well, for them to feel vulnerable in the dark, but then also their senses are heightened and they really feel yeah, part of... Like, like they're at the centre of this narrative that is unfolding around them. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other idea that we talk about a lot is the superimposition idea of using the darkness 
um, well, using the set and people having that context and then putting them into the darkness allows us to put another narrative on top of that space whereby they can experience a story that may or may not, you know, have things that are happening around them in the room or not, and people are not quite sure the lines are blurred between what's reality and what's in the mm -hmm. narrative imposed on top of it. That's so fascinating, because Punch Dunk, of course, builds an alternative reality, reality that you step into. This is so exciting because you, by putting them in the darkness, and they are in a physical space, of course they are, but that new space you lay over them could literally be anything and you don't need six million pounds to make that happen either because like you said you're they through that through the audio that creates that additional space and so it creates this yes. really lovely well there was two and i suppose those those first shows where we were basically there's a there's a space that you're sitting in and then there's a fictional version of the space which you'll put on the top so it's not mm -hmm. a different space it's the same space but that's where the fictional stuff is happening and then and then we play around with the space that you know you're sitting in where you might mm -hmm. hear a cough or somebody moving in their seat and that makes you constantly remember the space you're in but the, you're, you're, then you're playing with the idea of fictional stuff happening in that space mm -hmm. we, we've made you know eulogy you move out of the space that you're sitting in you go through a series of different environments and that's very effective to do that but that's a slightly different thing I think mm -hmm. but you have the freedom to do that because it becomes about imagination in a yeah. lot of ways yeah, yeah. That the audience have to they have, to, they have to build the sets themselves. Yeah, <laughs> which is great, which means you can literally yeah, get yeah. them to build anything. Like yeah, yeah, the so sky's the limit. And people yeah. sometimes say they experience things and they come out and they're like, well, this happened and this happened. You're like, well, <laughs> Yeah, one okay. person said they thought they were being buried alive, one person yeah, said. Yeah, all of these the wow. ideas take over because the audience bring a context to the, themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, like you were, we were talking before and you were saying how with Seance, the first show, um, it being the first Artfield show, it was quite useful in a way that it ended up being a topic that people bring a context to already themselves and then because it's a short show you could then play with that mm. idea or subvert that idea. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, there's a lot of interesting things I guess you can do with the duck. So it's like, it's like you said, isn't it, that the audience shaped whole is filled by the audience but the audience, every audience member is is different and brings yeah. brings something different with them. So I guess even though the audio is, is pre-recorded and is actually the same for everybody, it's because the body that inhabits the, the audience-shaped whole is different that actually even those people sat next to each other having exactly the same experience yeah. are not having the same experience. Yeah. I, I made this show with Anthony Hampton when I made these two shows in my run called Romcom, which was two actors who came half an hour before the show and then they'd put headphones on and then they just repeated lines that they were told to to say and, and they did things and uh, and it was like a, it was like a relationship between a, a couple basically mm -hmm. and it sort of went from beginning to break up and end but it was really interesting because everything was exactly the same it was the same text it was all delivered in a very in a very flat way when they were listening to it and then they coloured it or decided not to colour it oh. and, and the, the video behind them was the same everything was the same and yet it was like completely different every time it was done because the, the two actors, David was the first person to do it with Gemma from Shunt and it was hilarious. And then, and then a couple of other friends of ours were in a, were in a relationship. It was like, oh my God, how can they be together? <laughs> and they're not anymore. But it was like a, it was like, it was like a totally different play and it was ex everything was exactly the same, the same apart from the two people. And it's kind of, it's the same sort of idea, I suppose, with the audience in that they yeah, all bring yeah. a bit, you know, they bring themselves bring to themselves it. Bring themselves to it. And yeah. So it becomes... And like you said, then it makes them, in a way, the protagonist because yeah. it, it's their show. 
yeah. it always will be. Yeah. And they have their own questions, like Glenn, you were saying there were those two, the couple that came yeah. to one of your shows, maybe you say it better, but, but they and both. Yeah, and it, was a, it was a couple and, and uh, it was a married couple and, and he said, to, uh, he said, so how did all the how did the actors move around in the dark? And she was disparaging and said, "Oh, don't be so stupid." It was a bloody recorder. And she said, "But what did everybody else hear?" Because <laughs> she she thought that it was very specific to her. So you know, oh. she was kind of dafter than he was. Yeah, in some ways. <laughs> but then that's that's what's so interesting, isn't it? Is yeah. because of the way the audience inhabit it, it yeah. very much does become theirs. And it's key as a, it's key that that we that we never ask the audience to. Uh, take on a role of anything other than being themselves you know we mm-hmm. never say you, you're playing the part of this because then yeah. they, it sort of goes through the filter of them imagining what they would do as that role yes which can be quite challenging I mean I'm okay because I come from a performing background and so when I'm given roles at some mm. of the things that I've been to I'm quite happy to jump into that but my partner is an engineer he is not from that background he is not comfortable in social situations and him being given a role and expected to kind of act or perform yeah terrifies him so he doesn't come <laughs> no, me too I don't know that either <laughs> yeah it's ter- that's terrifying and I think there's something quite quite magical about just being able to just be yourself and mm. that's ac- very accessible actually in a way that some of the other work isn't necessarily because you are enough mm. to be able to and it's not intimidating and I think in some ways highly visceral because mm. people exit the show having all sorts of responses to the show depending yeah. on their own context so there are some shows which may be more nerve-wracking for some people because you know flight they might be have a natural fear of flying and they're really nervous about that but some people come out of the shows laughing and nervous excitement and some people come out terrified and there's all this myriad of different responses of mm-hmm. people that come to it because they've been allowed to be themselves and they're it does really feel like something is happening around them or to them or something might happen to them or they may be interacted with but even though they're not it's just the anticipation that audience size hole that we talk about and what they the context they bring that means that they just have quite a real visceral response well it's vulnerable isn't it when when, the moment you lose one of the senses that Mm. you are used to relying on naturally sight is one of our dominant if if you are seeing it's your dominant sense and so as soon as you remove that, that it generates a vulnerability, but also, like you said, heightens yeah. everything else yeah. because, because of that vulnerability, mm. I think, which is quite exciting. So where do you start? How, where, where, where's the starting point? Do you start with the audience size hole and be like, how do I want them to feel or see? Or do you start with tech? Where does that process of getting a show from idea to the audience sitting in the dark, sort of what's the process of that? Well, I think uh, with doubtful shows, it often starts with a, uh, the audience um, configuration or mm. design idea. So, Seance uh, was just, we, had, we knew we wanted to do a shipping container, we can get 30 people in there, how, how are we going to sit them down, or what are they going to do? So, we just came up with a configuration of facing each other that I felt quite interesting, and, mm-hmm. and then we thought well, we'll put a table in between them, and then of course that suggested a sense. So, it always starts, it never starts with the with the plot or story. Okay. It always starts with something else, and the story is then. We tried to find something to f- <laughs> to make some sort of sense of the of the <laughs> other stuff, and fl- and then flight, of course, you know, it was a bit like, well, let's put an aeroplane inside a shipping container. That's really exciting, you know. Mm-hmm. But then we had to try and find a, a, a story uh, that <laughs> made sense with that. For lots of people, I think <clears throat> we're working backwards to the way that people yeah, yeah. usually yeah. work. Yes, we absolutely. don't approach it like we're going to do Macbeth in a shipping container. It's more about what's an exciting configuration or what's an exciting way to use we have this tech 
what would be the most effective way to tell a story or what would be most effective for that audience member mm -hmm. to experience using those parameters that we are using as our design or yeah it, it often it just comes around with it's like a the text is just one of the things that we that we use and it's like we were excited about we did coma everyone wanted to be lying down and then if you're lying down then you can then do a few things with special effects like everybody can have aroma pumped over their say, face which is very very show. difficult to do traditionally because you know it's, it just Get dissipates lost. and stuff so <laughs> it was really interesting so we could do that and then that's that became how can we fit that into the story what what smells are effective not that many of them mm -hmm. but coffee is so we put a coffee machine in the set you know at the end of the space when you come in and yes. then we used a moment where you went and got a coffee sounded you know sounds good uh and then of course you're lying down that's sort of you know you're asleep or you're asleep no sleep's not scary you know, coma that's but you know so it kind of it kind of works like that really mm -hmm. audience experience first audience experience first yeah it's narrative comes naturally later on yeah but, and mm -hmm. also things with reading you know we're interested in ideas about you know um quantum mechanics as an idea behind flight only because we were trying to find something to make sense of it <laughs> but you know so we're always looking at philosophical ideas or mm -hmm. ideas about consciousness and existential crises yes stuff like that we're kind of interested in so in a lot of ways and it starts with that physical space of, of sort of you know we have this or we have this that they can have or they can wear or they can be near and then builds kind of out yeah, and so, so Ring, for example, the very first show we did, it was just a, we had this moment where there's a there's an actor in the space at the beginning, and then in the dark he he walks around this big circle of chairs, and he felt okay, so that's it's okay, but, but it's more effective if you can hear him. You know, what can we do to make him sound interesting? Mm -hmm. So we gave him a crutch, and that it sounded you could follow the crutch all around the space mm -hmm. much better. But then of course, why is there a crutch? Why is it got a crutch? So that then had to be written into the story, but it uh -huh. came out of the that physicality I, yeah yeah what would sound good in the, sp in the space mm -hmm. oh yeah crush would be great so that's kind of often how our show, shows are made and how, how, do, how do you do that then so how do you so do you just start recording some things and then sort of like test and develop it or do you kind of fix it all down and then record we do I mean we you know we haven't got, we haven't got enough funds really to do that much because basically I suppose that once you've made a recording, that's it. You know, you can't change it. It's not like you can just say to the actor, "Can you do it differently tomorrow?" You know, it's like that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So we always have two two goes of it. Mainly, sometimes a bit more now. But you know, when we when we started, it was we had two goes basically. We wrote something, wow. recorded it, and then learned from that, and then did another go. Mm -hmm. That's mainly what we still do. <laughs> we still do that, but we do have the extra day here and there. But yeah. generally, it's it's done in two two, two recordings. recordings. <clears throat> and do you record in the site? Is it already built, or do you...? No, we don't tend to record it. I mean, with Coma, we did a bit of recording. Well, a few of them have done recording in the containers, but actually we often do it in a studio, which is of a similar size. Ah, it, yeah. OK. And do you use actors, or do people within the company do the recordings? Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, performers. We use, we use performers, I think. I was thinking about this earlier, rather than actors, actually. OK. You know, for me, I think there's a difference between an actor and a performer. So actors, mm. you know, often want to know what they're... What's motivation, <laughs> yes. And I'm saying, you know, a bit like the audience, the, you know, the actors just be yourself, or you know, or, mm -hmm. or sort of. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Or like a performative self. Yeah, yeah. We don't really. I mean, I, we're terrible in directing because they don't. There's no rehearsals. It's just people. We just do a set. We just set them up, and then we. Okay. We give them the lines to say often on the day, or the wow. day before. So a lot more. <laughs> like, we're so late. A lot more like filming, actually. Yeah, yeah. Or like radio. That happens in TV and yeah, film yeah. and radio all the time. They get. Yeah. The, Script. Often out of order, and and the yes. more we've done it, we've also learned 
making iterations in different countries that it's very you know what we need to do is we need to separate out the sound effects from the voices so we can't have anybody speaking over a sound effect because then you'll have to re-record both so oh, we, okay, so so we do everything separately and then we put it right. together often people are acting on their own so, oh, we, so know, they we don't really have break the foley work so the foley work is separate yeah I'm, I'm running around with little speakers or doing things <laughs> in the container but, uh, so, so yes yeah, so it's all you know separate, separated out and then wow you, then you need to find people who have interesting voices it's all about how they sound so you can't have every performer come in sound like RP classically trained or this kind of mm -hmm. voice they'll just sound like the other character you would not be able to distinguish the characters unless they are distinctive in some way uh. or we have to be careful not to use yeah too many of similar types or not to you know across shows make it just sound like it's the same performer again you have to mm -hmm. kind of really think about quality of voice and finding characters or characterful voices do you audition then? Is there a kind of audition process or do you just sort of listen? Do you use voice actors or how, um, how do you kind of secure we get performers? We get, we get people to submit audio clips. We do a mixture of things. We do put out call outs and then, you know, listen on, you know, to spotlight or things they already have. And mm -hmm. if they're interesting, invite them to send us something with maybe an extract of the script. Um, we sometimes see work and see interesting or hear interesting, hear interesting voices, voices that you know lead us to talking to those people um, it's a real mixture but yeah it is so we do put out things into the world to to cast uh -huh. and there is sometimes a bit of an over reliance on people we know so we of often course. use the same people again because it's you know it's quite difficult it's like a, doing these recordings it, you have to pay for the studio the, it's quite it's quite a, it's quite a thing and if, mm -hmm. if it's not right then it's difficult so we some people we know are very good and we we have used some people quite a few times actually because it's like a choreography in the recording room you're not just sitting and talking to a microphone you're moving around the space interacting with this binaural head which is actually going to be the audience member and you have to get close to them and you know move around and work out you know we work out what's going to sound good and it takes certain performers that are kind of maybe more familiar with that or it's yeah. more natural to them because it is an unnatural thing for them to do it's a different type of mm -hmm. maybe performance than other contexts require. I mean the, the funniest sessions we have are with the, with the sort of extras if you like who just do the sort of audience sounds and that's about doing the smallest things so that you we, you know you can convince listeners that it's an, another audience member so we get people coughing or going Ooh, or breathing or we go so we get a room full of people and we say, can you all now do this? And it's like, they, they, I always think that at the end of the day, my God, it must seem like a you know, it's bonkers thing to just turn up and be asked to do this really series of random noises that they're asked to do. But it's brilliant but because it like means it. yeah. it's accessible. We don't always use performers for that. We just use, yeah. you know, sometimes we do, but sometimes the extras are not necessarily performers and they just come in and they be themselves again. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think that's really amazing. And, and actually, it's... It's so interesting because usually immersive performers need to be good at improv and kind of dealing with what might happen. And in some ways, your performers have to be ultra aware of the audience, but it's it's the lack of audience rather than the actual audience. And so I think that that again is is almost backwards yeah. in yeah. a lot of ways to how a lot of immersive work functions. So that's quite interesting. So we've we've talked a little bit about it, but um, I wanted to kind of explicitly ask. How do you get shows funded? How do you get them to wash their face? Because actually, all of your work is really accessible in terms of price point, especially in comparison 
to some of the other work that is out there and that's one of the things I I always tell the students I'm really encouraging I'm like this work is really affordable you can afford to go to this work and you can afford to go to it potentially multiple times as well so how do you was it did it start very differently and are you now in a very different place to where it kind of began in terms of finances yeah we started um, with the art I mean the Arts Council funded our first you know 15,000 pound grants we started with that mm -hmm. and, uh, and you know I was talking earlier in the workshop about the chunkiness of the first container, you know, we'd have somebody pumping a handle <laughs> to make the table, so it was all very, very, very cheaply done, you know. Yeah. But, um, resourceful. Yeah, it's resourceful. And people did, you know, we did it for nothing, basically. The first yeah. show, we got paid some far, further down the line, really. <coughs> so it's been a bit like that, and it's been... Um, so we, we got money from the Arts Council, and then, you know, Eulogy was funded by... The digital catapult uh, XR, what was it called? Creative XR Creative program. Creative XR program, yeah. Um, which is more of that XR community that we sort of entered a bit. That's our fourth show, so that's a bit later on in the dark field history. But um, when we started using or experimenting with tech, then it opened up a few more doors to a few other types of funds that mm -hmm. specifically um, want to fund that kind of work. But I guess there is essentially a few models. There is the grants from Arts Council, grants from maybe UK, people like UKRI who are trying to fund technology. Yes. There are some venues who um, help support the work by, we've just built a relationship with them and they receive the shows and are able, Great. some of the bigger venues who are able to cover the expenses. Not all venues can, no, um, but some venues are able to house, you know, have the work come and visit. Um, and then we've now sort of expanded and the work is reaching other territories so we for that have a licensing model which is quite a traditional theatre model Great. where other you know a production company for example we have a production company in Australia that license each show and build them basically the year after we've done it um, oh. so they we then have you know the usual model of having a royalty that comes through and then we basically put that back into creating the next work so Great. that has well helped also they, I mean since the beginning actually they've also given us a chunk of money ahead of in order to make it so they yes. from flight onwards they gave us some money to um, yeah so that added to to the pot and um, and then they would then take the show a year later and build it themselves that's great yeah, so yeah. co-commissioners partners um <coughs> and you know every so often there are there is a festival for example uh, one of the well bram stoker festival in ireland when we were making the dartfield radio digital work during covid we're like would you make something for us that's inspired by something by bram stoker so we made a, it's you know themed on something from dracula but it's its own piece called eternal which they commissioned so we have a few different models um, and we work with each partner differently and work out how we're going to, you know, model, like the financing of it, but sometimes they bring the pot and sometimes we go after the pot. So once you, so what would you say it costs you to get the show kind of ballpark figure, sort of up and running? I guess to first of all build it and record it and get everything in place, it might be now, I mean, I. Our latest shows have been more on the 200k mark for a container show, mm -hmm. um, but it really depends on what tech is in it, and every yeah. show is different because it has such a different need. Like a hydraulic floor is way more expensive than in seance where we might have an automated table, but it's just another level. And the new tech, yeah. obviously, um, that we might you know use going forward, there's the, all sorts of costs of that. So it's really hard to say. Um, uh, and then the radio digital pieces we're doing, they are 
you know, they cost less because we're not having to build a physical set and they've been really great for us being able to reach people across the world mm-hmm. and they have access, um, not having, you know, needing to wait for something to come to them, um, then they can come to us in a way. Um, but yeah, again, depends what we're doing, but they are, they're, they're much more kind of economical, like smaller scale mm-hmm. um, types of work. But yeah, again, we're also looking at new work, which is a whole different ballpark where, yeah, yeah. you know, if we do a roaming show inside a venue, like this is a whole different <laughs> level of budget. But that seems like quite a lot of money, but actually if you think about, you know, my wife's a set designer and that, that's, that's a sort of amount of money she's over budget. Yeah. you know on some of our shows yeah, yeah. so it's kind of like it's not a lot I and mean, if you think about the shows no. that we make then you know we're still running the one from t- 2016 yeah. 2017 so six years later it's still you know mm-hmm. so it's kind of you, you you have to find the money to fund it but then it's not it's not like a traditional statistic or gets chucked away after no. a month that you, we keep them going you know the ones in Australia have been going year on year you know to festivals all around mm-hmm. the year since 2017 and I think now the difference is we made maybe yes seance <coughs> was made on a shoestring but now the shows do cost more to make but that because we're thinking oh they've got to last mm. for a long time so we need to be building them not at the cheapest rate possible but at uh, the most sustainable yes. long term rate possible so yeah we have spent quite a lot of money on flight just maintaining maintaining it and all the mistakes we made building it yeah <laughs> learn a lot like, basically like drilling a hole in the ceiling yeah never do that <laughs> if anyone's got a container never ever drill a hole in the ceiling drill holes oh. in it oh <laughs> And so do do the tickets eventually sort of pay back for the show or or is or do the other sort of funds and funding and commissions and things sort of cover so the costs of that? I mean Australia's probably a good example <coughs> of that because they made the containers and they then get their money back from the ticket sales. Okay. It's probably more complicated for us because we're having to fund the making of them, but they they're, well, they're making and they're spending all the money to make the containers in Australia to ah. our, our specifications, and then it's sustainable because they're obviously coming back for more. Yeah, of course. So they, you know, I think what is important about the model and making it viable is the fact that when we tour a show, you have one technician, and then we ask the venue to give us one front of house person, and mm-hmm. so our actual um, running costs are very low for a show. Yes, and that means that after the transport costs have been covered you can have it in a place for a few weeks and then it starts becoming really economically viable because you word of mouth spreads you've mm. got lots more potential to make back the and investment they look nice as well because like they look nice yeah you can see it people are always intrigued aren't they yeah. they don't know as well because yeah. it's a, a shipping container with something yeah. along the side like seance for example. i just love the idea of driving in you know in tandem up the, the, the motorways i love the idea mm, that would be big amazing. white container and they did it when yeah. they went up to nottingham there was two of them on some they went somewhere and there was two of them going together yeah that's someone took exciting. a photo or, so, or someone saw yeah. them or something <laughs> but you know if they were done just for a weekend then it's not an, not so economically viable but yeah we just work with each venue and say this is what this is what we would say is the minimum time you should run. Yeah. And the longer, the better. And obviously, different people can do have capacity. And that's added things. value for them as well because it's not taking up their usual. So they can have kind of like shows in the main house. Well, it, and well, then it works both ways. I mean, mm. you know, it's great for us in Summer Hall, for example, in Edinburgh because it's, we're not using one of their spaces, so it's yes. like an add-on for them. Yes, exactly. But, but when you're trying to get, uh, I think, the experience of trying to work with places like regional theatres or like Manchester Royal Exchange or sh- wh- wherever. 
the problem with that is that they they all their funding goes on their their shows inside the main, so they can't they don't have any money to spend on this. Yeah, which is an add-on, so it doesn't really work. And, and, it's, and also, it works it's against you in that way. It's a large show. It's probably really a main house show in a way. I say that in quotation marks because it's a big show. Yeah, the scale. Um, it's not just sometimes we get inquiries and people are kind of expecting it will be this little thing that they can do outside the venue I'm like actually no it's quite it's an investment as much as you would invest in a, in a, bigger, a bigger main show, bigger yes. studio space or a bigger yeah theater space because of the costs of transport and things so it is really hard and venues are really struggling in the you know the arts are struggling in general and yes. so they're having to sort of try and be creative about where can we go like mm -hmm. public spaces what public spaces can we inhabit where have people able to give us land like it's about also finding all sorts of partnerships mm -hmm. um, and trying to work with the kind of what's the state of <laughs> like UK culture and arts and and how can we work away I mean there's so many in. spaces aren't there that people have to spend time in like for example I'm just thinking airports yeah like people spend a lot of time in the airport before they have to get on the plane that would it seems to be should put flight in there yeah, yeah that's what i was thinking <laughs> well, yeah, i mean it's quite terrifying and david was editing flight, flight on the plane oh wow <laughs> listening to the sounds of uh, the plane in distress while he was on the plane oh yes. god a difficult edit not to get confused <laughs> yeah and so the the shipping container i think is is just has so much potential and i think there's going to be so many exciting ways you can sort of develop that moving forwards but you were really 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 smart as well with lockdown you were able to kind of pivot and sort of utilize going digital can you talk just a little bit about sort of how you did that and sort of what were the benefits of sort of pivoting a little bit in that way what sorry go on i was just going to say that the darkfield radio app that we made during covid it the idea of doing something for people at home was already existing within the company it just never had been the right time uh -huh. and then obviously with covid it suddenly was like okay well this is <laughs> this is the project that's coming to the top of the agenda and the priority yeah. now and so we were thinking about all the things that we could and couldn't do so there's a lot of things that all of our tools were sort of taken away from us we couldn't guarantee any darkness we couldn't yep. didn't have any control of the set we had no control of the idea of what the audience might be doing around you so a lot of the things that we'd always worked with were sort of missing and so the one thing that we really managed to sort of uh, work with and hold on to was the idea of the space that you were doing it in. Mm -hmm. So we, w the first shows were with, with two people doing them together. So we sort of tried to maintain this sense of occasion that there was a sort of an event that you were doing with somebody and it felt like like a thing. And then we, the only way we could think about having any control over the environment that they were doing it in well, to, was to set it in rooms that we knew everybody had. Mm -hmm. So the first one was, it was um, recorded in, in a kitchen and you were asked to sit in a kitchen and do it. Uh, and and this, it felt like people were invading your kitchen, so we played around. Mm -hmm. So we were able to sort of play a little bit with this idea of the fictional space on top of the real space was the only real thing that we managed to maintain, I think. And, and, and the sense of uh, event, I suppose. Yeah, I really enjoyed that because there was lots of kind of consistently or downloadable sort mm. of content available during lockdown for various different things. Um, but I, I really liked that it became something you had to arrange to be there for. Mm. Like it was felt like a performance, like like when you go to the venue, when you do something, because it was broadcast at a set yeah. time. And during that time, you can't just jump in or out or do it when it suits you or do it while you're watching the telly or cooking dinner. And I really liked that because it, it reminded me of live performance. 
and, and that, that was for a reason. It was for the, all of those things, but also because you, you, know, you do need to concentrate when you can't just play this audio. Uh, no, people normally listen to audio by the, while they're doing something else, and so you couldn't, you know, we had to make sure that there was a sort of sense of occasion, mm-hmm. so people felt that they were, you know, that they could that they could put some time aside and do it. Um, and, I, and the other thing, I suppose, we, we were very, we didn't want to, we, you know, people asked us to put the stuff on, you know, put, why don't you put your shows on downloadable? But it's, you know, they weren't, they weren't, they had to, they were written for a particular set of circumstances. So that's kind of this, you know, all of our shows are about. You know, with the things that we use to make the shows, but also uh, the situ- the circumstances of where you're doing them. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you know, you can't do this show in your bedroom. You need to be in the shipping container where it, what it was made for. Yeah. So we were very keen that all the radio shows were written, made specifically for the the, the situation, and not mm-hmm. for, you know, you could do it somewhere else. You know, so it's, it felt very very important. And uh, you know, all our work is, I think, is, is very. Is very much about that, mm-hmm. and I think it was very, like very much a pivotal point in the Dartfield story because um, we then would double the first Dartfield radio show. It became part of Venice Film Festival, and suddenly we had this mm. new audience of people who were part of that world or the XR community um, or festival goers, um, who were then able to access it from anywhere in the world. And um, that continued throughout COVID and beyond, whereby most, you know, most of those projects had featured in a film festival. And so, yeah, that was exciting to us to suddenly be reaching people all around the world um, and then doing new partnerships. We had a couple of shows that were very specific kind of new types of work for us. One with um, Johns Hopkins University in the US making an interactive digital piece for two people around a very difficult issue, intimate partner violence, but it was our first kind of foray into doing something very different to what we usually do, mm-hmm. um, real issue-based work. And then another partnership we did with um, a Canada, UK-Canada immersive exchange programme where we worked with a documentary filmmaker from Canada and um, drug user activist podcast group called Crackdown. Um, who are working at the front line of documenting the overdose crisis and making a really interesting one-person experience about that, you know, the issue of the overdose crisis and the specific um, issues that community are facing. And so it has opened us up to other types of work, but has sort of made many meant well meant we had to kind of push our practice mm-hmm. in ways that we hadn't necessarily thought about before, mm-hmm. or work with others in ways that we hadn't had to before. That's exciting because. Obviously, going digital can increase reach, kind of in terms of how many people you can reach. But it's so interesting to hear that it really sort of shifted and changed some of those partnerships and some of the kind of the the, the style of the work and what the work was trying to do. And I think uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier. And I, I think the potential of immersive, interactive of this medium to tackle some of the big challenges that we have as societies and as cultures I think is enormous because empathy sits at the heart of what we do and so it's really really fascinating to hear about that work and building work that has the potential to impact or change people's perspectives or opinions or even just feelings about something and I think there's genuine power in, in that as a form moving forward that so it's been I mean, the tiniest bit of it has been tapped into I think there's so much more potential for that doing that and so, what's next? What are you, can you talk about what you're currently working on, or is it a secret? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> so our new show is, is called Arcade, which is going to be opening in a, in a month or so mm-hmm. in the Isle of Wight and then in Edinburgh. And this is a um, it's a shipping container that will contain twenty eight uh, vid- um, games consoles. Arcade units. Arcade units. Like yes. Eighties so style. Eighties style arcade units with a with a screen and then you know uh, and, a, and a single button, mm-hmm. and then you will interact with the story by pressing this button in response to. Mm-hmm. Questions in the dark, of course, in response to questions and headphones, headphones, yeah. and in the dark. So, and, and the idea being that you're, uh, you will be, uh, you, you will be represented in this game by an avatar who will be your avatar, navigating yeah. a quite war torn type world. And each person will have. There will be sensory effects, but because there are so many different questions and pathways that the narrative can go can go down, everyone will be having a unique experience, and therefore their sensory effects are built into the unit and will be activated depending on your choices. So you could go back and have a completely different pathway through the story. I think Glenn many, you were many, saying many, many, times. many endings, many different routes yeah. and you could go. So there's a there's like a probably thirty endings. And some of them are quite similar, might depend on a single choice, but there is probably nine or so really very different story threads which then you know so you know and there's also many ways to get to those nine so there's, there's probably yeah and many. so does that mean you've had to make or you're in the process of making 30 different yes at least 30 different audios yes wow which yeah. is mad but the, but the craziest <laughs> thing about all of it is that every, every or everything has to stop at the same time so that's the most difficult thing of all oh. well because you know whatever story you're doing converging them no, you don't converge them, but they all have to end at the same time because if, you th- if you're in a container with t- 27 other oh. people, you can't be waiting around for, for it to finish. No. We're having to sort of negotiate. Yeah. Uh, and that might mean cutting lots of stuff or mm-hmm. adding some stuff in, you know. So that's kind of another Param- obstacle and a parameter that's kind of exciting to, and is to this be making it. with a partner in terms of funding? Because obviously, like you said, it was it's quite expensive to do those sort of single audio so I'm, I'm assuming the cost is almost not 30 times more because of course it doesn't quite work like that yeah. no. it must be quite significantly more having to build it that is, much content it is a big show and that means we've also had to draw from different places to get funding some of mm-hmm. those are um, previous partners like our partners in Australia who will contribute to the kind of the build process and build funds of the show. Mm-hmm. We also received the Creative Catalyst UKRI grant Great. that will go towards the show. Um, and there's a few other um, venues like Bradford um, is going to be the City of Culture and as part of that they've contributed a small um, piece of the pot. Um, so yeah, it's really having to draw from everybody and say we're making this thing, mm-hmm. are you excited? It's always uh, this ongoing process we always go through of sort of seeing who yeah. would like to help contribute to making the work and then doing some funding, uh, fundraising and then seeing what Darkfield has to put in ourselves from mm-hmm. you know, the work I mentioned that we get royalties from for Australia or the other international work then just go straight back into creating the new show. Um, and is that a big part of your role then is sort of coordinating and reaching out to all of those different Talking to everybody. Producer, yeah. So we're doing that now already because we've got a family show in the pipeline and now I'm already thinking... Ooh. You know, we're so busy with Arcade, but I'm having to use this part of my brain over here somewhere to be like, okay, but we also need to talk to new people and talk about this new show that is so early days. But we do need to get the funding and partners in this year to build it next year. So Mm -hmm. it's a process that takes a while. Um, And another free roving show, which we're hoping to R&D in Canada in 
in November with yeah, that's another hopefully. show that we have to think about yeah so there's lots coming up on the Dartfield radar yeah, lots of so busy 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 new formats <laughs> new spaces we want to enter and yeah trying to reach as many people as possible by kind of broadening the variety of work that we do even mm-hmm. Arcade yes it's in a shipping container but we're designing it whereby we can take the units out and maybe we take over spaces and venues that wouldn't necessarily have space for a container show oh. but they have this disused cupboard and they could fit five things in and maybe we can have a residency there so we're trying to really open ourselves up to other models of working that means that more people can access the shows um, and we can kind of reach more locations more places um, yeah be more accessible and when does arcade sort of when when is it earmarked yeah. at the moment to go live and start touring. So it previews at the Isle of Wight Ventnor Fringe Festival. It Great. then will go to Edinburgh for the mm-hmm. month and be outside Summer Hall, which is our usual spot. And then after that, it will be um, touring onwards and upwards into <laughs> a few different locations. Hopefully, um, Bradford, as I mentioned, contributed mm-hmm. to it, so they'll they'll be there. Um, we'll visit Nottingham uh, Lakeside Arts Centre, who Great. are a brilliant long-term partner of ours. Um, Norwich Theatre, who are also um, yes. a, a newer but also strong new partner of ours that we want to work a lot with. So uh, there's a lot of exciting places that it's going to go next, as well as Australia. Um, <laughs> they will have it as well. They will build it. I will probably hope. try and catch it at Nottingham rather than Australia. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, it depends if you fancy a holiday and, you know. But either one suits, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So one of the last things I was going to ask you about, which I ask everybody about, which is... How do you feel about the term immersive? Um, it's great. Yes. <laughs> I think there's a mixture of feelings about it. For yeah. me anyway, I think there's some hesitancy. It's such a buzzword. Everyone is saying yeah. everything's immersive. I saw an advert for on gin. TV. You saw one for gin. I've seen one for a laptop and it's like the truly immersive experience. And we're like, okay, all right, guys. It's everything's immersive now. <laughs> even the laptop and even the gin. Even the glass of gin, yeah. Yeah, so it's really, really overused. but. So in one way, it's really a bit, it's difficult. We like, sometimes we use the word experiential, mm-hmm. but we do use the word immersive sometimes because the one advantage of it is people do recognize it. It yes. is a language that yeah. lots of people can access mm-hmm. and does describe the work in the way that we feel is immersive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like a double-edged sword of being this thing that can be, you know, lots of things are called immersive that we don't necessarily identify with. Mm-hmm. However, it, lots of people might come to something because it's called immersive immersive. so yeah it's maybe about us just being clear about what we feel what like what we do about what we do and how we feel it's immersive or experiential and yeah I mean I suppose immersive is is a word that we 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 do use but you know we're we're kind of we're keen not to uh describe our shows as scary for example so there's Mm. you know certain things if you if if the audience is expecting something I think with the immersive thing, we clearly are quite immersive when yeah, you're in there. It feels very yeah. immersive. So I don't think we're letting any of the audience down, or they're not going no. in there and arguing. Whereas if you say that you're frightening, it's scary, then people go in there and say, that wasn't scary. It's better for them to say it, you know, better for the audience to sort yes. of uh, say, that was scary. And that's kind of how we've always tended to work. We don't like to flag mm-hmm. up anything, but I just, yeah. I suppose. That's <clears throat> very common. I mean, we've just, I've just finished doing a report where we, we surveyed a lot of immersive or people who identify as immersive makers (laughs) and they said exactly the same that they kind of they have this sort of love-hate relationship with it that is is problematic and annoying and it's overused but actually audiences recognize it and and it means like it's it's an indicator 
of, of a kind of thing you might expect, and so audiences do connect with that. So it's and I don't mind if it is. Yeah, you know, and I do think that I don't think that we're being disingenuous. I think we are. It is immersive what yes. we do. But <laughs> it's when you go when you when you hear things described which clearly isn't. It's just like yes, they're using like, the like word, a laptop for example. Yeah, or gin. <laughs> you know. Yeah, or even some experiences where you're like. It's not immersive, but it is site specific, or it is whatever. Yes. Like it, I yeah. mean, I guess it gets a bit more subjective. Some people might find that mm-hmm. I don't know immersive, but for my personal definition, I'd be like, well, that's a slightly different thing. It's not ticking my internal boxes of what I think. What is immersive. I think is, yeah. We, I mean, so even on our system um, where we grade work for students, it's called an immersive reader, and I'm like, it's. It's an online platform for grading work. Why is it an immersive reader? I'm trying to make yeah, it exciting. I think it's just a danger if you if you describe yourself as something and then people come out and say that wasn't you know it's not mm-hmm. you know maybe you get them, maybe you get them to come and see your work once but they probably won't come back. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is not great, yeah, is no. it? If you want a long career. Exactly, yeah. You want to invest in your future audience rather than put them off, which I think is something yes. happening with lots of new forms of work now. Where I don't know, there's a lot a lot of experiences of like projector based work that you can go to that are called immersive insert this artist here but they don't necessarily they're not really I don't know they're not really made for that format or they're not really immersive and then people go to them they pay a lot of money and they're like well I'm not going to go to something else like that because it was disappointing it was disappointing like yeah yeah, I you know you don't want to but there's a conflation as well isn't there I think as well between interactive and immersive which I also think is really frustrating because some things are interactive and immersive and some things are immersive but not interactive as well so but I think there is a huge conflation and again it's managing expectations but I think actually that's one of the things you in your marketing are very good at I think it's it's very like I've never not got what I thought I would. Yeah. Coming to a Darkfield show, I think you we don't tell you anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very big. Exactly. We, we exactly. do get a lot of people going. What, what is, is this? this? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, okay, go think about how to describe ourselves. But yeah, I think the the issue with it maybe is the commercialization of it that feels icky. Yes. Maybe. I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. Using it as a marketing mm. yeah. tool, I think. Or like, oh, you know, there's a big influx of maybe big big, uh, like not necessarily the artists, but like big companies coming in and being like, we're going to do something immersive, throw loads of money at something and it not being necessarily high quality. Yes, I agree. So lots of new things then on the horizon. What is the best way for the people listening to find out what you're doing? Please um, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn those professional in the industry um, but also we have a mailing list and we we try and keep everyone updated um, as much as possible um, through those mediums and yeah we're always there you can get in touch with us via our website yes darkfield.org darkfield.org yes so if you're listening and I can always I will put it in the um, the comments box as well so you can just click straight in and find your way there Thank you so much. As as we've been hearing, there is so much going on. I am really grateful that you've been able to find some time to come up and work with my students here in the department, but also to talk to me for the podcast. And um, I do believe I have a big chunk of listeners in Australia. So if I know Australia is enormous, but if you are based in Australia and you, you see something about Darkfield, then get along. <laughs> yeah, they, they travel a lot. They so do, they, they will do. be in a city near you soon. Ah, oh, sure. very exciting. So yeah, if you're in, if you're in Oz or Canada, as well we've got yeah quite we've got taiwan we've got um we've had some work in south korea we've had some work in canada yeah there's a lot of um mexico quite a few 
places. This is great because I have a lot of international listeners who often contact me and say, everything's in London. Yes. Darkfield are not just no, in not, London. Not so and the app, London. the Darkfield Radio <laughs> app, anyone yes. anywhere in the world can access that and that's going to be relaunching this summer as well. So look out for that if you're not in any of those locations. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so thank much you. for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. And there's so many more things we could have talked about, but I'm sure this will not be the last time that we will have a conversation. So thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. It was a genuine pleasure to host Darkfield Radio up at the Drama and Theatre Arts Department at the University of Birmingham. And my students had an incredible time doing masterclass and workshop with them. And they brought one of their incredible heads with them for the students to have a go with, which was a lot of fun. We have some binaural equipment in the department, but it's just a set of ears. They brought the full head. So yeah, full experience. It was really great. Um, So there's quite a few different things that I need to kind of bring to your attention at the moment and some of them explain a little bit as to why I've been so incredibly busy and not in a position to constantly be putting out content once a month like I used to. I'm trying to get back to giving you more regular content but um, at the moment it's very challenging to match my timetable and my free time with the creatives so it's a little bit challenging but there are some very interesting conversations in the pipeline that I don't want to say too much about because I don't want to jinx being able to find a space to talk to them. Uh, So first and foremost I would really like to ask for your help if possible. So at work I have been trying to be able to evidence some of the impact of the immersive work that I've been doing. And part of that is evidencing the value that this podcast series has for its listeners. Um, So I would be super grateful if you would be able to click on the link, which is on Spotify. Um, I, I will try and read it out, but I suspect that will be a bit of a nightmare for you to type in. But I'm gonna put the link into the RSS feed on Spotify and hopefully that will come through with everything else as well so that you can just click on that and do that but I'm really looking to collect some feedback about the podcast and about how useful that it's been for you so that I can start to evidence some of the value that it has so I'd really appreciate it if you could just take a couple of minutes to fill that out it would I would be super grateful and if you can't access the link um, you can also just drop me an email maybe with your thoughts which is j.j dot bucknell which is b-u-c-k-n-a-l-l at b-h-a-m dot a-c dot u-k so you can either fill out the survey and take a little bit of time to do that or just drop me a quick email to say sort of where you listen from um, why you listen to the podcast and also if it's useful have you used it in teaching has it impacted on your creative practice has it facilitated you to meet anybody or change your insight on something I'm just really keen to have an understanding of the value that it has for the people that are listening um, so just to read out the link which I know is super tedious it is https colon forward slash forward slash f o r m dot j-o-t-f-o-r-m dot com so that's form dot jot form dot com <laughs> slash that's a forward slash two three one two three four three one two six three nine oh four six so that is a really long link i'm really sorry it's probably easier just to click on it or drop me an email. Um, The other things I really wanted to sort of bring to your attention now, I know quite a few people listen locally in Birmingham and in the West Midlands and sort of up north. 
If you're listing in those locations, super exciting news. Secret Cinema are coming to Birmingham in July and August. It is just a three-week run, so it's quite short. They're bringing Greece, which is very, very exciting. And I am really keen to see this production be a success because if this is a success coming out of London for Secret Cinema, I'm genuinely hoping it will encourage and open the gates for other work to start to come outside of Bermondsey as well, which would be super brilliant. So if you are local, they are running some offers at the moment and I'll put the links in again on being able to access quite reasonably priced tickets. So get hold of one of those tickets and get rehearsing your hand jive because it is going to be incredible it's at the nec and it's going to be outdoors and for the first time ever secret cinema have actually released an artist's impression of what the space will look like so you can get an idea of what it's like before you come yay super exciting uh the other thing that is happening this week so starting on wednesday wednesday through to friday is the World Experience Organisation Summit, which is going to be held at Phantom Peak in London. Um, incredible speakers and a really, really exciting lineup of different people giving keynotes, panels, workshops, and really just a chance to hobnob with pretty much anyone who's anyone uh, in immersive experience globally. So if you haven't got tickets already, and again, I'll put the links in, get, get yourself down there. I think you can get a ticket for the whole thing, but you can also get day tickets as well. And I'm going to be there on the Thursday, hosting a panel of British immersive artists. So if you want to come and find me, that is where you'll be able to find me in the programme. So it'd be great to see some of you there. Uh, I think that's everything that I had to kind of mention. Oh, and the other thing that's coming up, um, a little way off yet, but still, the Immersive Experience Network are going to be doing a scenography and immersive design one-day symposium in London on the 9th of October probably at Rich Mix Studios, but the venue is to be confirmed. So again, I'm going to be there. Lots of other different speakers are going to be there. There's going to be multiple panels, masterclasses, all happening at the same time. So again, I'll put the links in, grab yourself a ticket, come down and chat to us. It's so exciting to be able to talk to people who are listening. But I think that's everything for now. And hopefully I will be bringing you some more content soon from some really exciting makers. Until then, bye.